0: Welcome to the Falklands War Podcast, with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode one. It's the 40th anniversary of a war fought over a windswept group of islands closer to the Antarctic than to Great Britain. As a soldier in Africa in 1982, I was fighting a war far away from the Falklands, and yet the reports were closely followed by the troops at my base. We felt an affinity as South Africans with both the Argentinians and the British, at least as soldiers. It was an odd war, fought with the same weapons, NATO weapons. But bullets don't recognize nationalities, neither do torpedoes and missiles, and both sides were going to brutalize each other with Western arms. There was only one of the many unusual facts about this short, sharp war, which has left the veterans on both sides wondering what it was all for. As we watch Russia invade Ukraine, claiming the territory belongs to them, this is surely a moment to reflect on the Falklands, where 255 British military personnel died, along with 649 Argentinians and three Falkland Islanders. On the 2nd of April 1982, Argentinian forces invaded and occupied the Falkland Islands. Three days later, on the 5th of April, a UK task force set sail to recapture the islands and restore them to British rule. Nearly 26,000 UK armed forces, soldiers, sailors and aviators, 3,000 civilian merchant navy crew, a Royal Fleet Auxiliary, and even a Chinese civilian crew formed the task force involved in the liberation of the Falkland Islands, as it's known. Following several weeks of intense fighting, Argentinian forces surrendered on the 14th of June, 1982, a date that has since been known in the Falkland Islands as Liberation Day and is a national holiday. As I pull this podcast towards itself, Russia has invaded the Ukraine. In what looks like a split image of the Falklands, Vladimir Putin has completely underestimated the will of the local people to oppose the invasion. Unlike Argentina, the Kremlin though is seeking to re-establish complete control over its former vassal states of the Soviet Union. G.K. Chesterton wrote once that the true soldier fights not because he hates what is in front of him, but because he loves what is behind him. For the Argentinians, there was a lot of military historical water under the bridge, and that bridge was built on the Malvinas. We must investigate these, because they all add up to a crescendo that became a war. For the British, it was the same motivation. The 200 islands in the Falkland Group lie 480 miles northeast of Cape Horn, straddling the line of 52 degrees latitude and comprising around 4,700 square miles of land, which is about two-thirds the size of Wales. There's a geological irony as the rock formations and fossils suggest that its prehistory may have been part of a landmass of southern Africa, but the tree stump fossils suggest a closer link to South America more recently. The islands, though, were never inhabited by indigenous people, only by birds and seals. It also had an indigenous apex predator called the Falklands Fox, but humans shot it into extinction in the 1870s. We need to pick up the past and shake it about a bit to blow a bit of truth dust into this story, because history is what drove the Argentinians into war with the British in 1982. The arguments about who owns this icy flotilla of land began with its discovery. The British view, repeated regularly, is that English navigator John Davis first sighted the islands in 1592 when his ship was Driven among certain isles never before discovered by any known relations, lying fifty leagues from the shore, east and northerly from the straits. The problem with the discovery story is that non British historians disagree with this origin epic saga. The Spanish and Portuguese say so the islands were sighted by Amerigo Vespucci almost a century earlier in April 1502, when gales drove his ship along the coast of some unknown land, and he described Holy, a rough coast, seen fitfully. So far, so good. Both sets of discovery stories are unverifiable and somewhat suspicious. However, the next sighting was even more contentious. Sir Richard Hawkins wrote his memoirs 25 years after he said he sailed along the coast of the Falklands. The problem is he was obviously sailing past somewhere else. The land is goodly champion country and peopled, wrote Sir Richard. We saw many fires but could not come to speak with the people. It had great rivers of fresh water. Of course the Falklands at this time were uninhabited and it has never had great rivers of fresh water so it's believed Hawkins was being blown along the Patagonian coast and spotted the fires of the indigenous people who lived there. Just to throw a good cup of petrol on this fire the real discovery was actually made by a Dutchman who plotted its position with a little more precision than the other two. In 1600, Sebald de Wart sighted a group of three islands which later proved to be the outliers of the then-uncharted Falklands. He promptly christened them after himself, De Sebalds, and these days this little patch of islands near the Falklands proper are known as the Chasens. Anyway, the Sebalds appeared on Dutch maps through the 1600s. However, it was Spain who claimed legal title over all land discovered or not because of the infamous Treaty of Tordesillas in 1494. That was the grandiose act of Pope Alexander VI, who had conveniently divided the New World into Spanish and Portuguese spheres of discovery to stop them going to war against each other. The demarcation line ran pole to pole through a point 1,200 miles west of the Cape Verde Islands. Spain would hold the territory to the west, Portugal to the east. Talk about an act of gross colonial extravagance. So going with this version of ownership then, the Spanish owned the Falklands. In 1690, English Sea Captain John Strong was the first known person to step ashore at the Falklands. He was bound for the South Seas to fight the French and sailed down the Sound which separates the two main Falkland Islands. And it was then it was named, Strong called the strip of sea between the East and West Islands, Falkland Sound, after Lord Falkland, Commissioner of the Admiralty. On the 27th of January 1690, he put ashore to inspect the vast flocks of seabirds, penguins and forests of kelp. The French sailed through the islands later, interested by the accounts and decided they had named the islands after their home port of St. Malo, becoming Il Malouin. The Spanish named them Las Malvinas, following the French. It was the French, though, who charted enough of the north coast to produce a fairly accurate map of both the Falklands Malvinas and the Seabolts. This was published by French cartographer Frazier in Saint-Malo in 1716. For those wondering about all of this ancient history, please bear with me. I'm afraid, as with all things in war, memories are long and land is always claimed. Just look at the Chinese and the Indians and their strip of land in the Himalayas. Or at Russia, which lays claim to the entire Ukraine and quote things that happened in the 14th century as proof of ownership. So, by 1716, then the Falklands were still unpeopled. No one had set up shop, so to speak. In fact, more than 70 years after Strong sailed past, there were still no takers for immigration from any country. It was cold, remote, treeless, economically unproductive. As the 18th century wore on, nations began to realize that the islands were potentially significant. The French began to eye the Falklands, believing that as their power was stripped away in the West Indies, the Malouine offered a fresh colonial start. Spain regarded the islands as important, mainly as proof of their capacity only to resist the English. At the same time, Britain was emerging as the naval power to fear and began to eye the Falklands as a useful strategic tool, a base for further expansion. In 1745, Lord Anson waged a successful war against the Spanish shipping in the South Atlantic and carried away 500,000 pounds of booty and urged their admiralty to investigate the potential of colonizing the Falklands. But the Spanish at the time signaled they were very unhappy with that idea and nothing happened for 20 more years. Then Captain John Byron, the grandfather of the famous poet, led an expedition to the Falklands in 1764 and he kept his mission a secret. He left England with a frigate and a sloop and a royal commission. Had he blown his trumpet about the trip, the French would have had something to say, as you are about to hear. Byron duly entered the bay at Saunders Island off West Falkland on January fifteenth, seventeen sixty five, and named the little settlement he set up there Port Egmont after the first lord of the admiralty. Byron seemed to have the gift of the Byron family gab and promptly wrote glowingly that. The whole navy of England may ride in perfect security from the winds in the bay. He lauded the climate and soil, which is pure fantasy, of course, and then a surgeon from the sloop Tamar fenced off a plot of ground and planted vegetables. Byron also named a few rocky outcrops and headlands in East Falkland before setting course for the Straits of Magellan. This was supposed to prove providence. There was a glaring fault with Byron's assessment and claim. You see... He was totally unaware that the French had already settled on East Falkland and they had arrived with more than just vegetable seeds and a whole year earlier than Byron. A young French nobleman called Antoine de Bougainville had raised the French flag there on February 3rd 1764. He had built a fort at the settlement of Port Louis and conducted what is known as a ceremony of possession, thus ensuring providence. Meanwhile, the British were utterly ignorant about the French colony, or at least pretended they were. In September 1765, England's second expedition was dispatched to the islands to complete the settlement, and the Royal Commission stated that, If any lawless persons should happen to be found seated on any part of said islands, they are compelled either to quit or to take oaths and submit themselves to His Majesty's government as subjects of the Crown of Great Britain. In charge of this expedition was Captain John MacBride, and in December 1766 he stumbled upon the French colony during a voyage to East Falkland. MacBride was truly amazed by the sights of houses, fortifications and numerous people, more than 250. The French were baffled at first, then became angry when MacBride read out the letter and the French of course refused to swear allegiance to King George Third. It was bad news all around though, Nothing is simple in geopolitics. You see, after MacBride set sail back to England with the tidings about the French, de Bougainville had come under pressure from the French court to sell the colony to the Spanish, which he did in October 1766 for a cool 250,000 pounds. The Spanish then dispatched their own settlers to the place, and a Spanish priest who arrived in Port Louis in 1767 wrote, I tarry in this unhappy desert, suffering everything for love of God. While an English lieutenant in the Marines by the name of Thomas Coleman reported about the same time as he lived in Port Egmont, that it was, The most detestable place I was ever at in my life. One wild heath wherever you turn your eye. Both sets of folks stayed on their respective islands, the English on West Falklands, the French on the East and when they bumped into each other over the next few years, each side asked the other, "Please to quit their island, and each behaved as though the legal right was on their side. The impasse was resolved when the Spanish governor of Buenos Aires, Francisco Bucharelli, sent a fleet of five frigates to expel the British from Port Egmont. That was a bit of overkill because there were only 13 marines there at the time who surrendered, And the Spanish came ashore at the port and hoisted their flag on June the 10th, 1770. For their trouble, they seized a cabbage patch and 422 bushels of coal. Ah, what trouble politicians cause. So it was that George III, who preferred to refrain from war with the Spanish, was forced to listen to the clamour of Parliament which barked that honour needed to be restored and the Falklands returned to Britain. By December 1770, war seemed inevitable and Britain withdrew its ambassador from Madrid. He promptly travelled only as far as a nearby Spanish village where his mistress lived. Luckily, he dallied because Louis XV sacked the French court's leading hawk, Duc de Chaussil, and then informed Charles III of Spain that the time was not yet ripe for war with England. Spain then duly signed a peace declaration with the British on January 22, 1770, and the ambassador slipped back into Madrid, free to visit his Spanish mistress whenever he liked. And what of the Falklands? Well, this is where the real confusion and propaganda war starts. The Spanish say they did not relinquish their rights to the Falklands. They merely reserved their right on the question of sovereignty of the Malouin Islands, otherwise called the Falkland Islands, without actually handing it over to the British. The British disagree. The Spanish claimed later that the British had merely deleted this paragraph. It was a secret document, you see. This is why these days all these sorts of documents are signed in public and often read out in their entirety before they signed. Back in England, there was an inevitable uproar in Parliament. Spain had not climbed down enough, was the scream. Opposition leader Chatham yelled that the declaration offered no satisfaction, no reparation. This is at the root of the entire debate about who actually owns the Malvinas. The Argentinians definitely believe that the sovereignty question of the Malvinas was unresolved and the Spanish still had claim. This is an important legal principle, and in a moment I'll explain why. As governments are prone to do, Britain's Lord North called in the spin doctors back in 1770. In this case, the spin doctor was a real doctor called Samuel Johnson, famous lexicographer and wit aged 62 and receiving the princely retirement stipend of £300 a year, who, as the Sunday Times Insight team wrote recently, obliged with a pamphlet that lashed the pro-war lobby. Dr. Johnson wrote that Chatham's speeches were a feudal gabble and that the Parliament War Party sat like vultures waiting for the day of carnage. How prescient his comments are. And the doctor wasn't finished, as he aimed at the Falklands themselves. We have maintained the honour of the crown. Beyond this, what have we acquired? What but a bleak and gloomy solitude, an island thrown aside from human use, stormy in winter and barren in summer, an island which not even the southern savages have dignified with habitation. He then compared the Falklands to Siberia, except the islands he said were more expensive to maintain, and furthermore, the expense will be perpetual and the use only occasional, and which, if fortune smiles upon our labours, may become a nest of smugglers in peace and in war the refuge of future buccaneers. Despite Johnson's prognostications, Spain formally restored Port Egmont to the British in 1771. But in May 1774, the British, having got most of what they wanted, withdrew all residents, and the Falklands turned into what Lord Rochford called an economical naval regulation sans citizens, at least on the West Falklands. The British would only return sixty years later, but before leaving, the governor nailed a lead block to the blockhouse door at Port Egmont, which read, Be it known to all nations that Falklands Island, with its fort storehouses, wharf, harbour, bays, and creeks thereunto belonging, are the sole right and property of His Most Sacred Majesty George III. The summers and winters passed for sixty years, the seals and the penguins and the birds having free reign, along with the doomed Falklands fox, which still lived upon the island until 1816, when something momentous took place. A patchwork of republics in South America, including the United Provinces of Rio de la Plata, declared independence from Spain, and this became Argentina. The new republic laid claim to all territory previously governed by the Spanish Viceroyalty of Buenos Aires. It stretched from the southern tip of Tierra del Fuego, west to the Andes, and southeast to the Falklands. Four years later, An Argentinian frigate landed on East Falklands and took formal possession of all the islands, then nominated a governor in 1823, and in 1826, 90 colonists landed. Their leader was Louis Venet, and he was aiming at setting up what he called a great national fishery. Venet imported books, tradesmen, livestock, and a piano. He was a zealous colonial, but even he lost the plot. In 1831, he made the big mistake of arresting two American schooners for poaching local seals and sailed back with one to Buenos Aires. The captain was to stand trial, he said. Instead, American sea power was on hand in the shape of a corvette called Lexington, which took revenge by sailing to the Falklands, flattening Vernet's fortification at Port Louis, removing the residents as prisoners and declaring that the islands were now free of all government. The young state of Argentina objected furiously to the equally young state of America, but Washington ignored them, and back in the Falklands, chaos ensued. It's a tough place, and the tough people there were fighting. Argentina dispatched a new governor, and Paul Vernet never returned, Unfortunately, too, in his case. The new leader, you see, was tasked with setting up a penal colony, but his prisoners promptly murdered him. Argentina then sent a schooner to arrest the murderers, and they arrived and began chasing the criminals around the windswept island when, lo and behold, His Britannic Majesty's sloop Cleo suddenly appeared offshore. Captain James Onslow didn't hang about. He went ashore, struck the Argentinian flag, and raised the Union Jack. The infighting prisoners and others ashore muttered and gestured, but could do nothing. They all decided to leave the islands to the British and headed back to Buenos Aires. The date, 1831. Back in Buenos Aires and the New Republic, the machismo youths who were very sensitive about the honor being impinged flew into a rage. Argentinian citizens were ablaze with indignation at the insult and this resentment was going to last all the way, well, to today. The next 150 years were going to be pretty rough for the Falklanders, as you're going to hear in next episode. Buffeted by both the raging South Atlantic winds and political confusion – This isolated, windswept tumble of rocks, penguins, birds, and eventually sheep, and thus goodbye, Falkland's fox, was going to cause one challenge after another. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the inclination, or you can rush off to my website, abwarpodcast.com, and email me from there. Or if you're in even more of a rush, you can follow me on Twitter and direct message me at Des Latham. And thanks to Kevin McLeod, whose brilliant composition, Devastation and Revenge, I'm using as the theme tune for this series. Thank you so much, Kevin. It really is a great composition. And I wish you all the best with your others. Until next, adios.